Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 95 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name's Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising, who wants some ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. And today, I'm really excited to share an interview I did with the brilliant Martha Awajobi. Martha is an experienced fundraiser who has in the last couple of years taken her career in an exciting new direction, setting up her own flourishing consultancy, JMB Consulting, as well as curating and leading the BAME Online Fundraising Conference, which also continues to go from strength to strength. In this conversation, we explore the power of understanding your values, as well as the idea of courage in fundraising. Martha also shares why she's so excited about the lineup of speakers and topics coming up in the BAME Online Fundraising Conference in July 2022. I really enjoyed this timely, wide-ranging conversation with Martha, and I hope that you do too. Martha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. You are very welcome. I know you're busier than ever at the moment. You seem to have several different roles, and you're organising this wonderful conference for the summer and you're busier than ever so thank you for making time to chat how are you doing i'm good thank you i'm feeling really good it's a bit of a bleak day in manchester but not bleak in my office <laughs> no the uh, the listener can't see you i can see you on on zoom and i'm uh, i'm getting that energy i smile all the time <laughs> well i know part of the reason i wanted you to to come on is i've just noticed certainly over the last two or three years this energy that you've been emanating through all different kinds of channel this kind of charisma that's made people pay attention to, to what you're saying and to some important issues so just for the listener to to get a sense of what we're going to talk about you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago and you just signed up yet another fabulous speaker for your BAME online fundraising conference which is happening in the summer I think it's the 28th of July that's it I just want to get that in in case I forgot later. It's 28th of July, Fame <laughs> Online. And I want to come on to that in a minute because I know you were super excited about how it's going to be bigger and better than ever before. And some of the themes, some of the speakers. But also there's another thread to this that I think our listeners will find really interesting, which is in terms of this direction your career path has taken. And if I were to sum it up, you can correct me if I'm getting some of the details wrong, but as I understand it, because I've read some of your blogs and heard a couple of your interviews, there you were plugging away, working hard. You're a very successful fundraiser. I'm not going to go through it all, but one of them was Ronald McDonald Charities. One of them was Refuge, where you brought Mm -hmm. in fabulous record-breaking corporate income when you were head of corporate there. And it would have appeared that that's the direction your career was going. and then. If you could pick up the story and, and basically tell it in, in your words, but as I understand it, you've got a job offer to work in the arts sector, I think, at the Roundhouse. And then COVID happened and things took a different direction. And now you, your, your job is different. You've got your own business and so on. Could you start us off through that story, please? Yeah, of course. I mean, I wasn't even the head of corporate. I was just a corporate exec. Like I'd never even had a management role before, kind of heading up my own business, which always feels very surreal when I talk about kind of going thrown into suddenly being in this like leadership position when I just didn't really know what being a leader meant but to really understand my story and this is very dramatic but I was a fundraiser for a long time so we all go really far back right when I was a baby uh, so, so when I was less than one years old I met Maya Angelou this is a real story Maya Angelou held me as a baby 
she imparted some of her revolutionary radical spirit into me I am not kidding um it's funny enough actually so uh my mum used to work for the NSPCC um and she worked at the Maya Angelou Centre Maya Angelou came to visit it mum was like I'm gonna bring my baby Maya Angelou was like I want to hold your baby and here I am (laughs) you know because my career started at that organization for 12 or so years there were quotes from Maya Angelou on our website which I found inspiring and that caused me to find out a bit more about Maya Angelou's story and so on and I always knew that one of our centers then was named Tottenham yeah that's fascinating so your mum took you along and Gave you a cut. Maya gave me, I would say, a blessing <laughs> because um, and I don't know, I was always a very revolutionary kid. Like, I hated injustice. Um, when I was uh, 10 years old, so I would have been in year six. Um, I led a campaign in my primary, uh, my primary school so that girls could wear trousers because I felt a deep sense of injustice that I always had to wear a skirt, which meant that I wasn't able to do the same cartwheels and the same like moves that the boys were doing in primary school. And I felt deeply wronged. So I went on this campaign. I did a speech to, you know, the board of governors. I can't remember whether anyone else even got involved with it. I was just that really like powering through. Um, And I was successful and I was 10 years old and I saw kind of the power that you know, <laughs> social action can have. Yeah. Um, and I always felt like it was it was possible for me for me to change things actually because I had that kind of early experience. And even now, like I stayed in Tottenham for a very long time. I see girls wearing the trousers. I'm like, I did that. Uh, <laughs> so, so it. So I guess like I've always been had this kind of you know astute kind of political awareness. I've always been really um, interested in dismantling systems of oppression. And so I actually originally wanted to be prime minister. Like, <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> and I got into fundraising instead. Because, yeah, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make a difference. Because I think everybody who joins the charity sector does. I also wanted to make some money because I was 18. So I got into street fundraising, which they, they mock us with a very noble profession. <laughs> really, really learn everything I know about how to manage people, how to deal with, you know, diffuse difficult situations, how to talk to quite vulnerable people, how to stay safe, um, how to, you know, bring this energy that I'm quite famous for. Like I learned that on the streets of London, (laughs) having to keep energy, talking to people about things that I really cared about. So yeah, then I moved into kind of working in those, yeah, more head office roles um, and, yeah, I think I really came into my own when I worked at Refuge. Um, I won 25 under 35. That uh, list was really cool. Raised a million in one year at Refuge, which like I didn't think I was capable of doing. And it was just so, wow, like suddenly everybody knew who I was. I was like this little superstar fundraiser. And then I was looking for a new job. So I got, the, got a job at the Roundhouse. Um, I was super excited. <laughs> it all went terribly wrong when COVID happened. And... They gave me two months salary, which actually I was able to start my business with. Um, so I'm sorry. In terms of uh, timings, was that the end of 2019? You were applying to them, or was it early 2020? It was early 2020. So I would have secured the job literally end of February 2020, and then it was in my notice period. Then we went into lockdown. They found my replacement at Refuge. I couldn't even go back. <laughs> and the roundhouse were like, you know, kept delaying my start date saying, you know, we'll start you. We Remember when we thought that the pandemic would be three months? That 
really deluded time <laughs> in so you know in three months we'll open again and everything will be fine obviously three months came it was clear that that wasn't going to happen so on june the first i launched jmb consulting which was supposed to be a fundraising consultancy because that was my background um but the sector had different ideas for me actually which i'm quite glad that i was in a position where like i hadn't decided that this was going to be what i was going to do i kind of just let it happen <laughs> you know so set up my consultancy one of my first jobs was fame online and it all kind of went from there you know i was expecting to be doing like corporate partnerships consultancy work and ended up running a huge conference uh making a name for myself as someone who has something to say about racism and you know racism in in charity and philanthropy um and I started getting requests for like lots of different things I'd never done before can you train us I'd never trained anyone in my life (laughs) can you help us recruit our our trustees can you help us recruit our directors um and I just kind of start yeah I started responding to that and being quite open-minded about what I take on telling all of my clients that they're taking a risk because I have no experience in this but I'm creative (laughs) and they'll have a good time working with me Um, and I think a lot of people think I had some kind of master plan Uh, I didn't Um, I had a very kind of go with the flow mentality and yeah now I have a great business there's a team of five of us now Um, we've just hired a scholar uh, who I'm very excited about joining the team I feel like, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the story. It, it's, it was a series of unfortunate but very fortunate events that have kind of led me to, to where I am. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, maybe different people have different paths and actually different decision-making processes for how they get to where they want to go. And maybe for some people, more analysis and really carefully thought through, I'm going to set up my business and it's definitely going to be about this mission rather than the That might work for some people, but I'm hearing one of the things that worked out for you is being authentic, paying attention to what people need and going with the flow rather than that master plan. Is is that a piece of advice you might have for our listeners to maybe nurture that side of things a bit more yeah I would say I think so I mean I think it's really hard at least like for me like as somebody who's very like kind of new to consulting to have like a five-year plan when you've like not even done five minutes (laughs) you know I was kind of waiting to to find out what I was good at um and to kind of build you know build upon my strengths but I had to find them out first but what I did know was I knew my values framework and I've always known my values um and so I, I, I'm always guided by that. And we did a great exercise at Charity So White when I first joined the organizing committee that I'm not a part of anymore, but being with them has taught me so much about how to do this work and how to do it with humility and how to do it with pizzazz. <laughs> so we did a, a, an exercise about finding your values. And I think I had like 10 and I whittled them down to four, uh, which are anti-racism, bravery, creativity, and joy. And I am guided by those. So I accept contracts and work that falls within (laughs) those kinds of parameters. And that's been really helpful for me about kind of, you know, how do I build an organizational strategy that's rooted in those values? How do I find team members that share those values with me? How do I kind of, you know, even I use them as my due diligence checklist when I'm working with clients. Are they serious about anti-racism? Are they willing to be brave? 
are they willing to think outside the box and be creative and will this make me happy <laughs> working with them and I think having those values for me is more important than having the experience having that kind of you know strategy um, and I never compromise on my values ever but I'm more than happy to compromise on you know deliverables yeah I guess the skill set that I'm using but always being guided by that and I think knowing that very young has been really important for me um, and I think we think that success comes from something much bigger than it does which for me I think success comes from sticking to your values like knowing them staying in integrity I guess that makes absolute sense and from from me observing what you've been doing and, and how powerful it is how effective it is it makes absolute sense that one of your superpowers is knowing what your values are and if and when there's some uncertainty about whether or not you've got experience designing a certain kind of training a massive counterweight to to what can be tough is you always know what you stand for and there's a great power to that i think um amy cuddy who's uh famous for some other things she did a famous ted talk about power posing and so on and how physiology affects confidence and and so on but in her book i remember a really interesting exercise about a different way to access confidence different from her work about physiology is knowing what your values are and a tip i took from her is if anyone is ever nervous before a big interview a big pitch or whatever if you just sit for 10 15 minutes and ask yourself for three of your most obvious definite values and just journal why bravery or why anti-racism in your case why they are absolutely fundamental why you care who are your heroes that stand for those things even if it's not journaling your own examples of doing it even if you're just talking about your mentors and heroes amy cuddy advises pick three and write about them with complete mm -hmm. honesty and without filtering it helps a person access those values channel them and then that you walk into the interview or the pitch or whatever knowing who you are and what you stand for so you're less likely to be trying to fit in losing authenticity trying to please you know someone may or may not offer you the job they may or may not give you the gift actually paradoxically they're more likely to if you are the real deal Anyway, I just yeah. thought I'd mention that because I've used that in moments where I'm having a wobble before I've got to do a big talk or something. On the train in, I just do 20 minutes of that. And it's one of the, it's a very practical way mm. we can use that. I've got a, a, just a separate question is that's if someone already knows what their values might be. And it seems, you know, age 10 sounds to me like you're pretty clear on what some of your values were. You just hated unfair how you do language did but like uh, injustice or unfairness or not allowed to wear track you knew that then but for many of us oh what, what am i do you have a, any top tips on how a listener could relatively quickly get clearer on what some of their values might be yeah, I would say like ded dedicate like half an hour to really thinking about it, you know, and like I love mind maps. Like I have whiteboard pens and I write all over like my kitchen walls um, and, you know, like take some time to think about like what are the things that you actually value? What is it that you expect from yourself? I guess if you were if you were at your best, right, if you were at what you believe is your best, like what are you expecting from yourself? And like for me, like I'm expecting bravery, I'm expecting creativity, I'm expecting joy. And 
some of it is like I don't know I always come back to like the the younger self you know like I always I, I told the story of being in primary school quite a lot because I think we stray very far from our younger selves and actually like what did our younger selves value and I was anti-racism bravery creativity and joy when I was 11 naturally and then I had to kind of come back to that as an adult <laughs> without kind of you know getting distracted by all the things that we think we should value I'd say it's, it's an individual process but you you should go through the process you should just give it a go try and whittle it down to what feels right for you four or five and then think about it all the time like when I'm doing anything I'm like is this in line with my values you know uh, <laughs> am I being creative when I'm doing this am I being brave when I'm doing this it's yeah well yeah for me it's like fundamental to like who I am but I think having that sitting down with charity so white and actually writing them down like has is the reason I like I'm I'm able to talk about them in every single training Rob I end the training talking about bravery creativity and joy and I have a whole rousing speech right (laughs) and it resonates with people in a way that nothing else that I do resonates and like for me like that that makes so much sense and I think especially like charities you know we're all based around values we don't come back to our values enough we go back to our strategies all the time Um, but we don't talk about our values and I remember when I worked in refuge um, and Louise Firth was our director of fundraising and she would make us do and I learned a lot about like kind of annoying people to death with values from her. <laughs> she would make us do a kind of values check-in in all of our team meetings where we would nominate somebody who had displayed the values of refuge. Martha was very feminist because she did X, Y, Z. This person was expert because they did X, Y, Z. And like, it was so good <laughs> to remember like what we were all kind of signing up to. Um, and now I do it with my team and they find it very annoying, but I don't care. <laughs> Fabulous stuff. I'd love to go deeper and deeper on this and we've got loads of other stuff to get through, but I can't resist on this one. Almost every fundraiser listening and most of the listeners to this podcast are fundraisers. Courage has got to be up there as one of their values, I would say. It's not for me or you to prescribe what someone's values should be, but bravery I once heard described by someone as, I think they said it was the... um, the godmother or godfather of all other values. Because if you've got bravery, you're more likely to step up and be your best self in one of the other standards you hold yourself to. And if you haven't, then those other ones might not get get acted upon. So if we could, maybe I haven't got time for your whole rousing speech, but if you could just give our listeners, you know, many of us, sometimes we we wish we were braver. We find ourselves being more timid than we wanted to be any thoughts to help those of us who are doing our best to be brave of of how you access that or how we can deliberately access courage yeah okay I mean for me I guess when people say courage I think they're sometimes thinking about putting yourself out there like externally like and you know but for me like courage is like having deep conversations with myself about the times when I failed or like you know holding up a mirror to myself and saying, you know, have you actually lived up to your values? Like having the courage to admit that, like, is really, really important to me. So actually, I think courage for me comes in, like, yeah, the relationship that I have with myself, like understanding myself, the ugly parts too, <laughs> the really like difficult parts. Um, that's what it means for me. And also not being afraid to ask for help when I don't know how to do something, or when I, yeah, when there's something 
something missing and I kind of agree with you that like courage is above it all for me and I think when it comes to like working in the charity sector where we want to make change happen like we have to have courage right because you can't have change from a place of comfort um, or a place of idleness um, I think I've had to be very yeah very very brave at recognizing my own complicity in systems of racism and I, I think that was like the first step for me and I kind of like acknowledge that as yeah like the the root of like my courage I think when you're a fundraiser something that's really important to me when I think about bravery and fundraising is the frank conversations that you should be having with your donors about systemic power right and kind of oppression I think all too often we are very deferential to our donors we think they have all the answers that we should do everything that they say because they have the money but we have the expertise right and we're the ones who are you know closest to the people that they're supposed to be funding on behalf of right we should be telling them what they should be funding we should be telling them why it's important and often we will do ourselves a disservice because we want to get the money um, instead of thinking about kind of the bigger picture about actually how can this philanthropist, how can this funder be part of institutional change? And that <laughs> comes in the form of core funding, <laughs> more often than not, right? Um, and like, I have gone through a big process myself of realizing that I was doing what the donors wanted. I wasn't really kind of standing up for myself and saying, actually, this is the things that we should be funding. Like we shouldn't be funding things that make you feel good. Uh, you already feel good because you've got lots of money. So, <laughs> you know, like actually having those really tough dis discussions with, with donors. And uh, last year at BAME Online, we had one session called um, How Fundraising Can Support the Anti-Racist Movement. Um, and we had Vule from Community Centric Fundraising. He also does non-profit AF, if you know that. They are um, uh, USA-based, uh, looking at kind of moving away from that donor-centric fundraising and into more community-based fundraising. And he talks about how we have always understood philanthropy has been through a lens of empathy. The donor must empathize with the situation in order for them to want to kind of give, you know, which still kind of puts the donor as the decision-making. But what we should be funding based on is justice, right? And the donor should see their, their gift as a form of kind of, yeah, bringing about justice. And that means dismantling those power structures and having the people who are most affected by the problem be the decision makers about where that money goes. Because where did that donor get that money in the first place from, right? <laughs> from the legacy of kind of imperialism and exploitation. Um, so there's loads of really amazing movements looking at kind of decolonizing wealth um, and having those really difficult conversations with donors about, you know, where did they get their money from, especially if we're looking at like trusts and foundations. Um, and fundraisers are in a great position to do that, but they need to be brave. Um, and yeah, it's very hard, but that's why it's one of the core values, right, that underpins them all. Yeah. And when something is hard, anything we can do to understand it better, get more skills, get more tips, anything that could put us on the front foot increases the chances that we'll be brave. And so that really leads me nicely on to thank goodness for the last two years you've done this conference, which is all about, I mean, that's one one theme you cover there is, is helping people. How do I have that conversation and, and have it in a way that by, by the end it, it works out, it's win-win, the donor enjoys investing in justice and so on. 
So I know there's several different themes, but in, in a nutshell, Martha, it's on the 28th of July. People can look it up as BAME Online Fundraising Conference. Who's it for? You've already sort of touched on one of the important themes, but give me a, a sense of, of what this conference is about and what we take away from it. Oh, it is about everything and anything, and it is for everybody. No, that's really <laughs> over the top, but it is for everybody. It's for anybody who works in the charity sector that's interested in understanding an experience that isn't a white-centric experience, right? So people who are fundraisers who are white, like learning from uh, colleagues of colour about their experience navigating the charity sector, about how a fundraising can be part of the anti-racist movement. At the moment, fundraising and philanthropy is definitely a continuation of white supremacy. And actually, we need to have a conversation about what that means. This is for anybody who's interested in learning about the history of the charity sector, the history of philanthropy and how that fits in with kind of the history of British imperialism. Um, this is for anyone who's interested in becoming a leader, especially people of colour, um, how to navigate those complicated systems, uh, what it really means to kind of be in those positions of power, how to build a network around you, how to build better self-care. Um, this is a conversation for white leaders who want to do great anti-racist work. Uh, we are going to be talking about the realities of doing anti-racist work, both from a kind of fundraising perspective, looking at decolonizing wealth and philanthropy's role in reparations, we talk about you know, funding strategies that are rooted in love. Like no one's talking about this stuff. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm really, really, really excited about one of the sessions, which is about the realities of doing anti-racist work. And it's with um, Fazana Khan, who is the executive director of Healing Justice London. Um, I think they're so cool. I'm really excited to talk to them. But it is about that, you know, what it, what it really takes to, to dismantle systems of oppression. I think often we think it's going to be easy. We think it's going to feel good. We think it's, you know, we're going to read a book and then suddenly we'll have all the answers. And like, I have dedicated my life to this and I still don't have a clue what, what we should be doing, you know, and like really kind of thinking through what it means when Audre Lord says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Like, how do we do anti-racist work without relying on the same kind of white normative systems um, and those kinds of, you know, Eurocentric metrics that keep the status quo? I think often we'll try and do anti-racist work, like, without really understanding, like, what racism means, what race is. So we rush into these actions and solutions without doing the learning, the unlearning, the deep, 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 deep reflection and introspection and that creative dreaming space where we Im imagine ways of working that like we haven't done before. Yeah, so I think everyone should come. I mean, what we've started doing is we, we're building our YouTube channel at the moment, which has like some shortened versions of some of the um, sessions from previous conferences so people can get a flavor of what we talk about. Um, I think that's actually quite helpful because I think some of these session titles can be a little bit scary for yeah. people. So just as, as a really practical thing, if someone's in, intrigued, fascinated, they've sort of deep down, they've felt they, they're curious, they know they want to do more, need to better understand this. A really sensible tactic is to check out your YouTube. Where do they find that? It is BAME Online at YouTube. I think it's hashtag BAME Online. I have a team doing it now, so I don't even know what it's called. <laughs> hashtag BAME Online on YouTube. I will share the link with you. Um, so I've been I've been reflecting a lot um, 
on why anti-racist work doesn't work. It hasn't been going so well over the last few years. And a lot of it is a complete lack of racial literacy. People don't understand what racism is. They don't understand what race is. They think it's ethnicity. They think it's about skin colour. It's about systems of power and very intertwined with capitalism. So I've been working with a scholar who I rate so much called Khadija. Like, I just think she's got the most astute political analysis that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, she has graced me with her presence in my organisation, uh, not only to whip us into shape to understand racism properly so that we know what we're doing, but for us to reflect the journey that we're going on, like a learning journey with the rest of the sector. So Khadija is going to be teaching us, <laughs> we are going to be talking about what it feels like to have some of these, I guess, notions that we've kind of taken for granted. Like, so for example, she hates the, form, the term privilege and she breaks down why she doesn't think we should be talking about privilege anymore. I think that is going to be on our YouTube really soon. Um, so I'm building this kind of YouTube channel as a way to, yeah, offer this really deep understanding of racism and what it means for the charity sector. I'm fascinated in the, A, what your scholar is, is bringing to it. And it makes absolute sense to me that it's really hard to solve something if we don't have some, some sound understanding and good sense of what certain terms mean otherwise it's ever hard to communicate um build build trust build agreement and so on one thing that is clear to me is that this stuff is not easy and if i know you know it's got your, your first year was great and then it got bigger and better the next year and some of the people coming along were on their own and they got loads from it and then they came back to their organization and if they were if it was just one of them attending then however much fire in their belly and intelligent nous they had in sharing on those ideas it was probably still going to be quite hard but i know some of the organizations both large and small they were smart enough to know that if we're going to have a hope of this really getting going let's get everyone there i can't remember was it macmillan in the first year the whole fundraising department came or was it the red cross i remember when we spoke before you were thrilled that a couple of really large organizations had stepped up um, so in the first year, and I have to give props to the Red Cross, like in the first year, the Red Cross bought tickets for their entire staff team, that is 4,000 people, before they'd even seen the programme, right? <laughs> that was a real show of faith. I mean, it, ha it, it helped that the other host works at the Red Cross. Um, and yeah, Macmillan bought tickets for their entire staff team. But that's what I want this year. Yeah, I want our listeners to see the wisdom of this. If you mm -hmm. care about this topic and you sense more could be done, don't just come yourself. You know, even if it's, you just get one other person to come, that'll increase your chances. Obviously, even better, bring your whole team. Obviously, better if the whole department. But I just want people to see when something is easy, just go on, go on the course yourself, come back and do it. But when th something we can all tell just is genuinely hard, like be, be savvy about it. And the, the more yeah. people can come along and have this discussion, clearly it's going to help with implementation isn't it yes definitely i would love for people to get in touch with me to talk about getting bulk tickets if they want to lobby their organization to, <laughs> to get get a, a bigger ticket they can put the decision maker in touch with me and i will have that conversation with them uh, because it really matters to me to get this in front of as many people as possible and we've actually just signed a contract with uh, BSL interpreters so that we can have all of the, um, yeah, we're going to have BSL interpreters there the whole day, which means that even more people are able to access our content. Like that's been 
so important to me to like, get that done this year. Um, you know, we talk a lot about access um, and yeah, I think leading by example is really important. But the more people that can come, the better. And like, you know, organizations like you're in, you're in this together. Um, and this is a really kind of good first step. I think we go very hard, but we do it with joy. Um, and we hold people with a lot of care, uh, recognizing that this is horrible for everybody involved. Um, so we have to approach it like from a, a joyful perspective. And sometimes I think it's really hard for us to imagine a different future because the limits of our imagination are set by white supremacy. But something about BAME Online like gives us the space to like really imagine something different. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like all the speakers are like indefinitely cooler than me as well. <laughs> so, and I'm quite cool. So, so yeah, if not, come for the bants because it is very funny. <laughs> and, and there are some really cool people doing some really amazing things. I think if you're a person of colour, um, this is like a real space for, to be seen and, and to feel recognised. But like we all have moments where we're like, we can really relate. The first year was amazing because it was like, no one had been able to talk like that before. So it's like the entire audience was crying. I was crying. Everybody was kind of crying. Uh, I feel like now I'm kind of I'm able to steady my emotions a little bit more. But yeah, everybody should come, basically. It is for everybody. Fabulous, Martha. So thank you ever so much for coming onto the show to, to share your excitement about it and give us a sense of some of these really cool things that are going to be happening and also a sense of how you do it with, with the, the banter and the informality and all the rest of it. It does sound like really a joyful thing to be at as well as a valuable thing to be at. So obviously people can check out YouTube for some of the content and some of the speakers. But if someone right now just wants to, when they get back from driving their car or get back from their exercise, however they're listening to this show and they want to just take some action, where do they go if they want to book their ticket? Yes, so you can get tickets to BAME Online 2022 um, on JMB Consulting's website or on Fundraising Everywhere's website. You've got two options. Yeah. Brilliant. That's it. Can't wait to see you all there because you're all going to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Martha, I know you're so super busy and um, thanks for making time. And I just really enjoyed all these ideas you've given us. Also, the, just the energy with which you bring it all to life. So I've loved the chat. Thank you. Best of luck with the conference. And I look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rob. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Martha's tips and ideas. If you want to access lots more of Martha's content, do check out her YouTube channel, which is BAME Online. And you can find out more about the next conference or book your ticket via Martha's website, which is jmb-consulting.co.uk forward slash BAME online. For anyone who's not yet subscribed to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast, do click the subscribe button today so that you get access to our whole back catalogue of more than 90 episodes, as well as the new ones we've got coming up. If you'd like a full transcript and a short summary of this episode, go to the podcast section of my website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And if you're a fundraising leader and you'd like to get access to lots of effective fundraising techniques and training for your team, do check out the Brightspot Members Club, which is our training and inspiration site for fundraisers. As well as access to live workshops every week, there are more than 50 video learning bundles covering a broad range of fundraising and leadership topics. Although we're not currently taking on individual memberships, we are accepting team memberships, which actually work out better than half price per person compared to the individual ones. To find out more, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk 
forward slash join or send me a message through my website. If you enjoyed today's episode, then we'd be incredibly grateful if you take a moment to tell someone you know who you think might find it helpful so we can get these ideas out to as many charities and fundraisers as possible. And Martha and I would love to hear what you think about today's episode. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Martha is at Martha Awajobi. Her surname is spelled A-W-O-J-O-B-I and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Lastly, thank you for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising and I look forward to sharing more episodes with you very soon.